Mate, you look awesome. Yeah. You ready? I think I'm ready, yeah. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle, and this is the Acquire's Podcast. My guest today is Chris Cole of Artemis Capital Management. Chris is a very old friend of mine. He's one of the first people that I met when I moved to the States. And he runs a firm that has a very unusual strategy. Uh, he uses volatility to provide crisis alpha. And we're going to explore what those things mean. He literally meditates on risk. So we're going to learn a little bit about his meditations and the result of those meditations, which are these widely read, brilliant, abstract pieces on investing in the stock market. Chris, welcome. It's great to be here, Toby. It's a lot of fun. Um, volatility is a really abstract concept. So just for people who aren't investing in volatility all the time, I mean, it took me two years of you explaining it to me before I could understand it, and we're now nine years later. So what, what is a simple explanation for people who aren't in the sector? Well, volatility is just simply change. And so if you, if you look at what what Artemis tries to do, uh, we make money from from change. We want to turn change into opportunity. Um, change can be on two sides of the equation. Uh, you can have you can have uh, tremendous turbulent left tail change. Um, that's periods like 2008, um, and that is really damaging to your portfolio. Um, or you can have periods of time where there's tremendous change to the upside, where there's a lot of volatility and shifting to the upside. That's right tail. Um, and uh, we, we try to profit from, from both of these different regimes. Um, uh, certainly, certainly in, in one case, uh, the left tail can be quite damaging to, to many institutional individual portfolios. So we try to turn that into an advantage to people, where, where uh, in the event that there is a uh, significant shift in markets, a si significant shift in regimes in either direction, uh, we want to be able to turn that into opportunity for our clients so that uh, their livelihood and their uh, institutional portfolios and their spending is not impacted uh, by turbulence in markets. And you describe yourself as a provider of crisis alpha, which is a, a tail risk strategy or akin to tail risk, but, but somewhat differentiated from it. Can you sort of explain what that is and, and how it's differentiated? Yeah, you know, mo most people's portfolio, uh, I, I have a, a different philosophy on the world uh, than, most, uh, than most kind of mainstream, uh, than what was taught in most mainstream finance books. What, what you're taught in business school, for example, is that you want a nice diversified portfolio and that diversification is going to provide uh, benefits to you over time. Uh, I think that was really proven to be false in the 2008 recession when everything went down together. Uh, the problem at the end of the day is that most people think they have this diversified portfolio of different asset classes, but really in a crisis they find out that 
they're at their their diversified portfolio is just 98% levered to long GDP. Um, and the way I like to phrase this is that there's really only two asset classes. There's there's short volatility and there's long volatility. There's asset there's most people's portfolio requires stability, requires some sort of expectation of mean reversion uh, to make money, and it's long long uh, the overall growth in the economy and the expectation that that growth continues. When you end up seeing some sort of um, uh, deviation from the recent past, um, that could be either a massive deflationary environment or a massive inflationary environment. Um, uh, most people's portfolio is ill-equipped to handle that. Um, and that's the long volatility asset classes. And most people, 98% of what they have in their in their portfolio is only exposed to long GDP, only exposed to stability, is only short volatility. What we seek is that crisis alpha component is the, the, the being benefiting from change, the benefiting from sort of regime change. That regime change could be something as extreme as a depression, or it could be something as extreme as a, uh, a kind of extreme inflationary mark, markets go up 100, 200 percent, um, and inflation's up as well, uh, kind of what was experienced in Germany in the 1920s. Both are examples of extreme left and right-wing change. Um, we want positive exposure to that, and that's what I would define as crisis alpha. People typically associate high volatility regimes with crashes, but we have, even in the US, we've seen high volatility with uh, a market advancing very rapidly in the early 1990s. Um, you, you say... Uh, and this is one of the things that I find most interesting that I think the thing that most people are afraid of is a gigantic crash. But the thing that they often miss is that hyperinflation or a very uh, high inflation, unusually high inflation is another possibility and, and volatility can help in a, in a scenario like that. Yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic example. Um, I, I think now one of the issues is that people say hyperinflation, and people get these crazy idea of gold bugs and Germany and Zimbabwe. Um, but there's other less extreme examples of periods where you have um, extreme volatility and extreme right tail movement. Um, so uh, the, a great example is the late 1990s in in the U.S. Um, you're in the throes the, the dot com bubble. Um, you know, everyone was chasing these dot-com stocks. The Nasdaq was going crazy. The stock market went up 100% between 1997 and the end of 1999, and volatility averaged over 25 for that period. That's amazing. To put that in perspective, you know, to put that in perspective, there's nearly twice the amount of volatility that we've experienced in the recent past. So that's an example of, uh, and, and during that period, you had regimes where the market would jump up dramatically and then collapse 20% as well and then go up another 50%. So this is extreme volatility with extreme movement towards the right tail. Um, Obviously, uh, another recent example was uh, China in in the lead up to their crash in 2015 was a period of extreme right tail ball. So everyone's oftentimes very afraid of uh, the left tail, um, but they, they oftentimes forget the impact of how volatility can coincide with particularly periods of extreme uh, uh, speculative tops in asset markets, usually uh, incentivized by irresponsible central banking. Um, and and these are two two elements of the uh, of the volatility puzzle 
Um, and I think the right right tail is something that oftentimes gets uh, gets forgotten or ignored uh, by people who who view uh, volatility as a potential investment. You, you've been running Artemis in its current form since about 2012. And uh, before then, uh, you had a slightly different strategy, which was to try to implement uh, as more of an alpha type strategy, try to, to try to generate returns uncorrelated to the market by trading volatility. How have you used those skills and built them into uh, the current the current form of Artemis and the way that you sort of trade volatility? Well, I, I said always. There hasn't actually been that much. Uh, there's been an evolution of my strategies and an advancement of my strategies over time. But I think the philosophy has always been very consistent. Um, I think the difference is that the period of 2007 to 2000, about 2011, represented an incredible period of time to profit from uh, change in markets, particularly the period of 07 to 09. Um, so strategies that uh, the same strategies as applied. To, as applied today, has have less of a return simply because there's less change. But if we re-enter that type of extreme volatility environment, you would get an amplification of those returns. That 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 uh, is is true alpha. So the the benefit of volatility investing, if you're going to invest in a volatility fund, the the game plan at the alpha is not the expectation of alpha is not something that occurs in, in a consistent day by day basis. The, the idea is to hold a volatility fund through a business cycle because you're going to enter into seasons of volatility, just like there are seasons in nature, um, and you want to you, uh, you want to capture the transitions between these seasons. Um, so uh, I started, uh, I originally was a derivatives uh, structurer at Merrill Lynch um, and Bank of America, became Bank of America. Um, in my spare time, I uh, developed a strategy trading uh, the then fledgling market for VIX futures and VIX options. Now, to put this in perspective, um, if we go back to 2006, 2007, um, I was running with probably about $200,000 of just personal money, um, and at times I was 20% of the of the trading volume in the back VIX futures. Um, which, if anyone knows about trading now, that's it's quite funny because that market has expanded quite a bit. Um, but I was able to make uh, large asymmetric gains in the period between 07 and 2009 uh, through these types of uh, these types of volatility and profiting from change strategies. What was really interesting is that there was a profit from the regime shift up involved, which was incredibly massive, one you know, of the largest jumps in volatility since 1987, but also profiting from the regime shift down in volatility. I think that's what, what sometimes people forget. Um, and that provided the seed capital for Artemis. Um, and it really took uh, until about 2012 to begin launching an institutional vehicle. Um, and, you know, you know, as you know, you know, we, we, uh, we would, uh, you know, some of the viewers probably don't know this, but to Toby and I would get coffee every day and we had beachfront apartments in Santa Monica. And I was running my little firm out of a beachfront apartment. You know, now, now we have now we have you know nine employees and a board of advisors in in in, uh, in downtown Austin. So it's expanded quite a bit since then. But there were very humble beginnings and very exciting beginnings back then. Um, so it's been a fantastic journey. And it's a great testament to the robustness of your strategy that you've survived through what has been a very difficult time for volatility because there's been not a great. You haven't really had that gigantic volatility event, uh, and and. 
presumably that's coming at some stage. You're not necessarily predicting it, but you're, um, that, that's the nature of markets, that that season comes eventually. You know, it's so interesting because you're in, you're in, uh, in LA, so it's, it's always 70 all the time. But, uh, you know, as you know, uh, I grew up in Michigan. And so if you look at the temperatures in Michigan, they'll fluctuate anywhere from, I mean, I think it was negative 25 just a couple of weeks ago when that Arctic blast came down. And, and then it can go up to about 103 in the summertime. Um, the average temperatures about 60 degrees. And that average temperature, predictably, occurs at the end of September as you transition from summer to fall, and of course in the spring. So I want you to imagine that um, imagine that you're in Michigan, uh, you're hanging out, it's, it's, uh, it's August, September, the temperature drops from 90 all the way down to 60 degrees. And then you run around screaming to everyone oh my goodness it's it's 60 degrees out this is incredible uh that's what's happening this is unprecedented this is incredible and of course everyone in michigan would look at you like um this crazy la guy doing right (laughs) he's never um you know you know do you know it can get a lot colder well what's really interesting is last year we had this uptick in volatility from a truly generational low point in vault. 2017 was one of the lowest volatility years in 100 years of data. So, you know, as if you're in the throes of summer and volatility went up a bit in 2018. And the media goes crazy. You have all these people saying, oh my goodness, volatility is exploding and there's all this expansion of volatility. But, so if you look at the average of where volatility is, if you look at it, where volatility averages is about 20. And if you look at the rolling one-year average of where vol was last year, it barely ticked above 17. So we didn't even get over an entire year to where averages. To put this in perspective, volatility went above 20 and stayed above 20 for six years between 1997 and 2004. It was above 20 for close to five years in the great financial crisis. It was above 20 for another five years in the in the uh, period of 87 to about 1990 during that recession. So everyone's running around screaming about um, high volatility. It, it is it is analogous to you know screaming about how cold it is when it reaches 65 degrees in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm from. The difference here is that. Um, seasons in markets last around the debt cycle. They last about three to four years. Um, seasons in nature last about three to four months. We have been, due to central banks, in a in a substantially prolonged period of summer. Um, and that ha- that's what's been unusual. But the volatility we experienced last year is actually just below average. So the average is a little bit misleading simply because you have those enormous spikes. It's a little bit like the old joke about the guy who's got his feet in the oven and his head in the refrigerator and he says, on average, I feel pretty good. That, that you, You're 100% right on that. But even if you adjust for that asymmetry, even if you adjust for that asymmetry, there's nothing particularly unusual about 2018 right. in a full sense. So your strategy is not at all 
uh, about predicting volatility uh, events. And we've, we've discussed uh, at various times when I've said, do you think that this is, is this the big one? And uh, it might surprise people who, you, you sound like a bearish guy, but you, you've often been quite, um, your view was in many of those instances, it wasn't, and it's been borne out every single time. What, what sort of uh, inputs or how, how are you making those judgments? You know, it, it is interesting, I should clarify, we have some models that are arbitrage-based, um, and the legacy models around Artemis have been arbitrage-based in the sense that, and what that means is that, you know, if, if someone comes to you and says, uh, uh, you drive a lot, you live in LA, um, what if I give you car insurance um, for the next week and I'll pay you a dollar to own car insurance? Would that be interesting to you? But only for the next week. And you'd probably be like, sure. They're like, oh, here's a dollar and you get car insurance. There are some times in markets where you can structure positions where you're paid to own insurance against extreme outcomes. Um, and you're actually paid to own that. And uh, a lot of our strategies have been based around taking advantage of that. Um, as time has evolved, we've been uh, applying new strategies that, that use data science in many ways to, uh, to have a predictive edge. And in this sense, we look at uh, I, I like to use another another Los Angeles analogy. You know, the fires in Malibu. Uh, you can never predict the the spark that causes a forest fire, but what you can do is, if you want to look at forest fires, you look at underlying conditions that lead to them. So, uh, you know, things like dry weather, dry dry heat, um, uh, high winds. These are all underlying conditions. Um, and when those underlying conditions are in place, uh, if a spark does emerge, it's likely to transform into a forest fire. Well, we'll use data science and a lot of domain expertise combined with new analytical techniques in order to scan markets for various uh, macro factors that have uh, pattern matched onto previous periods of financial stress. And then we'll use that to price and size options. Um, and that's been, uh, I think, a very effective method, particularly over the last year. Uh, what are underlying conditions that lead to volatility fires in the market? Uh, these would be things like uh, breakdowns in FX and carry trades. They'd be things like uh, uh, changes in different cross-asset correlations. Um, uh, one that was particularly relevant last year was uh, divergence in the movement of interest rates and different equity prices. Uh, any one of these things, maybe not enough, but when multiple of them are happening at the same time based in a prediction, uh, in, a, in a predictive algorithm, then you can use that to, to buy insurance effectively ahead of a volatility fire. Well, it sort of begs the question a little bit, what, what do you see right now? It's sort of late, mid to late February 2019. What, what's your view in the short term? So it, uh, it's interesting. There's, there's, you know, my 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 personal view in the long term, and and what our models show right now is is actually uh, a pretty benign environment for volatility. Um, and if anything, the risks are more. And I say risk. Risk is an opportunity. Um, are more skewed towards markets exploding upwards than downwards at this particular juncture. Um, uh, but that's a short term view. That's, and when I mean short term, I mean really, the next week to two weeks. Um, I think uh, I think from a, from a personal standpoint and looking at it from a macro standpoint, um, uh, you know, certainly the what central banks have, 
the the about face that central banks have done and what what Powell has done um, certainly has caused a huge run up in markets this year. Um, I think the S and P nearly has a sharp ratio of five this year. Um, and if we think about you know it's it's crazy it's amazing actually because you know all of a sudden you the world's ending in December and then they decide not to raise rates you know 25 or 50 basis points and then all of a sudden everything's good again um, I in the short term this can work uh, but if you if you look longer term um, it's not a lack of central bank stimulus sometimes that that causes big crises it's a buildup of speculative debt and leverage and right now the buildup in debt and leverage um, is is at historic proportions uh, you know uh, corporate debt to GDP is about 47 percent it's never been greater um, and so even though in the short term you can have the stimulus injection I think I think in the long term the market cannot be continuously sustained by uh, companies issuing debt and buying back shares and continuous debt expansion. At some point, there is a limit to that. And I, I think if you study previous periods of crisis, um, uh, you'll see that same pattern. It's uh, oftentimes not been an it's, it's not been a fact of a, a lack of stimulus that has caused an economic slowdown, but oftentimes a buildup of debt that becomes unsustainable in any type of uh, in any type of basic business cycle pullback. Um. You're, you're an incredibly creative, uh, analytical guy, which is an unusual sort of combination uh, to find in one person, combined with that phenomenal work ethic of yours. You've sort of produced these incredible think pieces, for want of a better word. I, I, uh, I, I've loved reading them when they've come out. I've, I've often found that the best way to read them is jet-lagged or, or after a glass of two <laughs> of wine, I swallow the whole thing in one go. Um, so I, the, your most recent one is uh, a riff on the David Foster Wallace. What is water? So what is water in, in this context? Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I think I, I wonder how much how much of these. I, I actually really miss the old days of going down for coffee and sometimes on a Friday <laughs> Friday night going for wine. And I, I, I imagine how many of these ideas have been tested on you before they've come out, or how much I've and vice versa, how much I've absorbed, you know, from 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 your wisdom and your worldview. So it's uh, I, I think it either either uh, uh, quite consciously or subconsciously, you know, you, you've been a, a co-author on many of these. Because, you know, for people who don't know, Toby's the first guy that I would run ideas through, and you know, one of the most valuable minds in terms of uh, being able to think abstractly about these things. Um, but I, I think about the concept of uh, you know, there's that wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful kind of parable that was um, uh, that was uh, talked about um, in that commencement speech. Uh, and if, if someone has not listened to it, I, I think. Just take 20 minutes of your life. It's it's sort of a life-changing speech, um, but he talks about the concept of two fish uh, swimming, and they're swimming along, and they come across an older fish, and the older fish goes to the younger fish and says, "Well, how's the water over there?" And the two young fish are like, "What's water?" Um, so, in many ways, we we exist in a world of abstraction, and and the medium becomes our reality. So much so that we don't even see the medium, and and this this can be this meta thinking experiment can be taken very broadly. 
Um, but I think one of the one of the key things that one of the key things for me to understanding volatility, and then understanding that the market could crash the way it did in 08, and being able to hold volatility through that, was this realization that that money didn't really exist. It exists. It's a medium that is important and that we derive our our livelihood from. So it exists in that sense, but it it really is only a human thought abstraction, and that if people lose faith in in money, it, it ceases to, to matter. Um, and there's many historical examples of that. Uh, the same thing could be said uh, across a numerous di different uh, institutions and things we take for granted. Um, democracy only works because we have a collective belief in it. A government only works because we have a collective belief in it. If that collective belief vanishes, the, the medium vanishes. Um, so in that sense, we have to imagine ourselves as fish swimming in water. And real volatility is not necessarily a – the true volatility is a situation not where the uh, there is turbulence in or waves. Uh, that's one form of volatility. True volatility is actually understanding that the medium itself can be taken away or can evaporate, where all of a sudden you're a fish outside of water gasping for air. Um, and uh, I think in, in, my, in my latest – the piece from last June um, – the discussion around that was the fact that we are actually seeing a significant degradation in liquidity in the stock market, which is absolutely um, is absolutely scary in that sense. Uh, in February, I, I think people talk about the volatility event in February, and they, they talk about the VIX spiking up and what happened to the VIX ETPs. Sure, that's alarming, but I think what's what's more alarming is that you could, on February 5th, have put an order in for just $30 million worth of E-minis and moved the whole market. And you had people who, uh, fund managers who have been in business trading futures and options for, for 25 years who say I, they couldn't believe how bad the liquidity got and what was a relatively uh, small move in, in, in markets. Um, so I, I think this is, this is one of the big risk factors that people, people are not really thinking very much about is that you have these these ETFs that are backed by a liquid underlying. Um, you have, in many instances, uh, some of the ETF providers are almost acting like shadow banks in this in this role in this liquidity mismatch. Um, you have companies buying back their shares at record paces, a trillion dollars of share buybacks, and in a very literal sense. The stock market volume is back to where it was in periods of the late 90s. Uh, so the the stock market is actually self-cannibalizing, um, and as a result of that, you also have regulatory rules that have inhibited other players in stepping stepping forward to provide liquidity. And the um, the high frequency players are kind of like shadow market makers. You know, they're they're there most of the time, but when there's a crisis, they step back, and it provides this artificial artificial kind of trust so that there is this liquidity that that seems to be there until it's not uh, so when you're looking at this confluence of events combined with excessive leverage in the in the in the global economy right now um, this is an interesting interesting scenario where we may actually see significant disruptions in the very medium of of the market of the market itself which could leave uh, invest, investors, you know, gasping for air when the water evapor uh, the water, the very medium that we use to transact, evaporates. Is that 
there have been crashes in the past, and the the nature of a crash is that a lot of liquidity disappears. Is this is this a new phenomenon? Is this something that it, why why is this such uh, why is this something that's on your radar now? Uh, it's certainly liquidity drying up is not a, a new phenomenon. I think what is a new phenomenon are many of these, the fact that many of the new regulatory rules and that and the fact that the ETF landscape. Um, and the fact that now, the, the another thing that I did not mention initially here is also the fact that most investors are now passive. We've crossed the 50% barrier where most people are now passive. So th- these we take for granted these instruments and we take for granted this liquidity, but in many ways it's, it's, it's phantom um, because uh, and, and, and a lot of these structures have not been tested in a real crisis or in a situation where central banks aren't providing ample liquidity. Um, and uh, so I'm not, this is not an end of the world scenario. I'm not, I'm not pointing out, um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sit there and say that the whole stock market's gonna collapse tomorrow and that you should run and you know, go get gold and guns. Um, I, that's, that's not what I'm saying. These are risks and we're pointing out risks. And when, when, Liquidity dries up the way it did on a four percent down move in markets. Uh, that's something I think if you're an institutional investor or or even someone an individual investor um, should should take notice or be aware of and understand that there are different strategies. Uh, long volatility is one of them, but other other strategies that benefit from change that may be good diversifiers to protect against that type of liquidity risk and this type of type of regime. The, the passive investing s- situation is something that's really um, uh, a really interesting topic to talk about as well. I, but w- we can get into that a little bit later or, or dip- I didn't mean to interrupt your question. No, no, I, I was, that was, that was where I was going. I was just going to ask you about, th- there have been a proliferation of ETFs that have, the, and the, um, the attraction to them is that they're so liquid and trade through the day and the underlying trades through the day, but it's easy to see that there might be a mismatch between those two things. So that was where I was, that was what I was going to ask you. I mean, specifically in volatility, there have been volatility ETFs seem to be, I mean, short volatility ETFs in particular, because they have that uh, return stream that basically they make a little return every day pretty consistently until Taleb's turkey farmer comes and chops off their head and we've seen that recently with vxx um exploding i'm really glad you know i'm really glad you kind of brought up the the xiv debacle um which i i don't think is uh you know i want to after xiv blew up and you know as you know that's something that i something that we had talked about since 2012 i think i mean it was and I had written publicly about a lot. Um, you know, I think Artemis had warned about the potential of that going back many, many years. Um, and uh, so when it finally blew up, I told a friend of mine, um, you know, thank God, now we can stop talking about this. So, but, but I think what's interesting about the XIV, and for, for people who aren't familiar, um, you had a situation where you had a product that rebalanced in these underlying VIX futures, and people, it became very popular because it was a short volatility product that made money from the roll down in VIX futures. the The problem was is that um, the problem was is that it, uh, it it in many ways came to dominate. It became a major part of the ecosystem in VIX to the point where it actually was 
imposing a self-reflexivity on the futures and the VIX itself. Um, so as something that Artemis had warned and we had warned through the years, you, it was very possible to get into the cycle where um, as, as, the volat as volatility rose, um, this particular product had to uh, exit out many of its positions to the point that that would then cause volatility to rise even more in a self-reinforcing spiral that would cause a massive, massive collapse of the entire product. And of course, that came to, to, to bear. You know, many people were trading this product at a three-time sharp ratio until it went almost to zero. And you had many people who lost their entire life savings as a result of it, many brokers embarrassed by it. So that, that's the story there. I think what happened with XIV, it's, it is possible, it is possible um, for that to be a microcosm that could occur in many other types of ETFs that have illiquid underlyings in the wrong type of systemic market crash. Um, certainly you could be in a spiral where you have a, you have a uh, ETF product that's particularly liquid, people are selling out of that product, and then you have an underlying asset it, that is less liquid, in some cases doesn't even have the same day settlement as the underlying liquid ETF, and then it becomes a self-reinforcing spiral. It might not be as dramatic as what happened with XIV, but XIV is a an interesting proxy or an extreme proxy for what could occur in different asset classes or different styles of ETFs in the wrong type of environment. Um, that's something to keep in mind. It goes into something with the ETF frenzy and the passive investing frenzy. You know, this year, um, uh, according to Bernstein Research and J.P. Morgan, we're, over 50% of the market's going to be passive. Um, and uh, I have to give credit where credit's due. This, this, this thesis did not come from me. But, um, but uh, Mike Green, who his thesis, he came to me to, in many ways, act as a sanity check. He said, you know, Chris, can you, can you t independently test this thesis of mine? So um, he said, the first part of my thesis is that the more the market goes passive, the higher volatility should be. And I said, okay, that even though I'll test that, but that makes intuitive sense to me. It absolutely makes intuitive sense to me because naturally, if you have no incremental, if, if everyone's buying and there's no incremental, if everyone goes passive, each incremental buyer causes the market to gap up and each incremental seller will cause the market to gap down. So if hypothetically you had a market that was 99% passive, volatility should expand dramatically. And this made intuitive sense to me. The second part of his thesis initially did not make intuitive sense to me. Active managers uh, across the spectrum have been criticized for underperforming passive index funds. Um, and of course, the people who, who put this out there don't talk about the fact that index funds have actually had one of the most historic sharp ratios in history going back over 200 years, but let's just ignore that fact because obviously things don't mean revert. Being sarcastic, obviously, but but the you look at it and say, okay, what he so the tremendous amount of criticism of active managers underperforming underperforming uh, passive investments, 
and institutions and pension systems want to go fire all their active managers and go to these passive passive products. Well, Green's theory stated that the more the market becomes passive, the more the market is dominated by passive investors, actually, the less alpha will be available to active managers, but the more unstable the market will become. So Mike Green sent, sent me this theory. He works for Teal Macro. Um, and he said, can, can you help me like run your own simulations and let me know? And I said, you know, I agree with the first part about the higher vol. I don't know. Intuitively, it, the second part doesn't make sense to me. So then I created a simulation that looked at um, just a simulated market environment that shifted the percentage of passive to active investors. And sure enough, what I found is that um, he was absolutely correct. The more the market is dominated by passive investors, uh, when you begin going over a level of 50%, go 55%, 60%, when you start jumping over that level, and really the sweet part, sweet spot's about 45% passive. So the further you go away from 45%, the less excess alpha is available to the active manager. Um, and also, the same thing happens on the other tail. So in a market that's entirely dominated by active investors, it's, there's less alpha as well. But I found this fascinating, and I was trying to understand why, and I, I came up with this basic analogy. Um, it, it, this one's counterintuitive, right? You'd think that if everything Very. is passive, you'd think that active investors should be having a field day. So let's imagine, let's imagine this. Maybe this goes back to some of our old days, you know, having, having, having wine down on the beach in Santa Monica and, and talking markets. Um, let's imagine that... Uh, Let's imagine that um, we go out and I get in just incredibly drunk. I get crazy drunk. And um, I am a passive investor. I, at this point, I'm passive. I, I'm wandering wherever, aimlessly, right? Aimlessly in whatever direction. But you are my friend and you're an active manager and your job is to direct me home. So when I go too far to the left, you, you bring me back. When I go too far to the right, you bring me back and you're, you're helping me get home even though I'm a, a stumbling drunk. Well, this is what active investors do. When things become too undervalued, they buy. When they become too overvalued, they sell. They're volatility stabilizers and they're helping to find value in markets the same way that a sober man is helping to get a drunk man home along an optimal path. This works out wonderfully and you are compensated for your efforts. Well, now let's imagine an alternate situation happens. The passive investing, the passive drunk becomes so dominant, so large, that all of a sudden I'm not, I'm 5'10", 180. I am, I am now 20 feet tall and I weigh 500 pounds. I am a giant. And I am drunk out of my mind. And you are trying to pull me back to the right path. But you can't. I'm too big. I'm too strong. I'm stumbling drunk. But you, are, you, you can't correct it. This is what happens when passive investors dominate the marketplace. 
they are a large stumbling drunk that's just going to roll in, in whatever direction. And the active managers become too inconsequential to correct their valuations. So in either direction, depending on the prevailing mood of the economy, you're either going to have wild fluctuations to the upside, or you're going to have wild fluctuations to the downside, whatever the prevailing dominant di dynamic is. So according to this theory, as the market, according to Green's theory, as the market becomes more and more passive, volatility will amplify and market instability will amplify. But the volatility could be right or left tail. Right? We're not saying volatility means a crash. We're saying it could be right or left tail. But inevitably, it makes the, the market highly unstable. So, you know, you know, Vanguard and, and, and what they call the Bogleheads, the people who are the efficient markets people, um, they, 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 they preach the gospel of efficient markets um, in the temple of passive investing. But what you can prove analytically and quantitatively is that when the and that's not a bad idea when there's a balance but when the market becomes dominated by passive ironically it becomes the passive investing drives market instability and market risk um, so like I say this this could be this if, if we if we see this trend continue we should see a trend towards either right or left tail ball. Um, it, I'm not saying the world's going to end. You know, I'm not uh, not bringing out my sickle and and uh, and uh, saying that everything's going to collapse. But it, it should it should lead into a period of enhanced high ball on either tail. There could be a crack up boom, is what you're saying as well. It could be a, a, an event where the we have a late 1990s type scenario. Easily, yeah. Or or. Or a crack up boom followed by a crash. I it, it is impossible to it is impossible to predict because a lot of it is driven by what you know if if central banks want to print more money and then there's speculative fervor you could have a massive crack up boom or you could have a collapse in the event that you that people are not able to service their extraordinary debt obligations. Either way, I I think what we are going to see in the next ten years particularly if these trends continue, is an amplification in volatility. Um, and what, what I'm saying is that you can make money on change, on playing either tail, and that w when we see these trends coming, we see these trends coming, uh, what looks best in the rearview mirror are short volatility trades that have made money from mean reversion. But and if you're an institutional portfolio, those look very attractive because they have fantastic three-year sharp ratios or four-year sharp ratios. But this next regime is very likely to benefit strategies and uh, active managers that focus on on change. But change can be and volatility or regime shifts. But that change could be on either tail of the distribution. It's important not to fixate on just one. Let me let me just go back a little bit to the to the analogy of the drunk and the uh, the explosion in passive investing. So I, you know, I, if you look at the passive investing, simply means that a strategy tracks an index, and indexes aren't necessarily uh, 
you know, S&P 500 style market cap weighted index, which I think is what you're talking about, because in that style of index, if something becomes overvalued, more money flows into it, it becomes bigger. So that the, the companies that are the biggest and the most overvalued attract the most money, which is why any strategy that's sort of even an equal weight strategy has historically done, has, has outperformed that, uh, that market weight strategy, because an equal weight strategy looks a little bit more like a value investing type strategy. It just pays less for earnings and assets and so on. So, and that's my, my intuition about active investors in that kind of environment is that that's a good environment for them because, you know, let's say that, let's say that I'm not your friend on the way home from, from the bar when you're stumbling drunk. And let's say I want to pick your pocket, which is kind of what active investors are trying to do. When those, um, when those movements occur... I'm not necessarily wanting to short the very biggest, but I might want to buy the very smallest. And to the extent that they don't attract capital and they stay um, undervalued, from my perspective, that's a good thing. So I'm sort of interested to know, I'm sort of challenging the assumptions a little bit. What is the nature of the passive uh, in one instance? And and why don't active investors benefit from that? Well, it's it's, the the concept at the end of the day is absolutely, absolutely there should be some correction in that but what will happen over long periods of time you know uh, is that the the active investors are just not big enough to to uh, to cause a correction and correctly value so if if you're if you identify something as being um, misvalued uh, let's just say uh, you decide to buy a princess diana beanie baby in 1999 for for $2,000 or $45,000, right? Um, But if money keeps, now that's obviously, you could sit back and say it's absurd. Actually, that's not a good example. Let me take a step back because let's let's just go back to a business that you can actually value, right? Something that has cash flow. So something is undervalued. Um, uh, And it's it's, it's wonderful that it's undervalued undervalued, but unless there's some sort of a realization of that undervaluation, um, you can't monetize your correct understanding of the world in that. Um, Or something is overvalued, but money keeps flowing into that, um, then it remains overvalued. And if there's not enough active investors to self-correct it, um, you end up, you end up running through problems. I, I talked to one individual who was a sector specialist, and he, he was a, an absolute, uh, uh, I can't say who he is, but he's a very well-respected hedge fund manager who runs a boutique firm that um, he does short selling in a specific sector. And he has a fantastic track record, and um, he was lamenting how difficult it's been to uh, short sell some of these stocks, uh, that you'd have situations where the stocks would uh would there be outright fraud in a particular stock and it would keep going up and he, he had never seen this in his entire career and he he felt that the indexation and some of his some of these stocks that he was trying to short were in indexes he felt like the indexation was actually a key factor in driving this that money flows were pouring into these ETFs that were just allocating to these stocks because they had a certain level of liquidity 
And that was propping them up regardless of any understanding of the fundamentals. He's the smart guy trying to pick out the overvalued stock, but he's not able to, to realize his gains because the dumb money keeps flowing in in mass. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem is that if, if that drunkard is so big, there's just no way to self-correct it um, until, until he falls off a cliff and dies. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I, I have some sympathy for the view because you can certainly see uh, last year, for example, I think that the market cap weighted S&P 500 outperformed its equal weight counterpart. And that has been... Uh, that has occurred more frequently over the last few years. That's that's an unusual thing. Uh, that's an unusual event, and certainly over the last few years, S and P five hundred, the strongest one, or, or those, the U.S. stock markets just long only market cap weight are some of the strongest performers in the world. And any hedging or any global exposure outside of that has sort of led to underperformance of that. I, I sometimes wonder whether this is a and, and this and, and your you may be saying that this is um, it's the the fact that we've now tipped over that that key point at 45 percent of the market becoming passive because it's something that I certainly remember there were articles in the late 1990s in 1999 talking about there were companies that didn't even get picked up by the Russell 2000 so there were two small Russell 2000 is the is in the largest 2000 it's the smallest 2000 of the largest 2000 so the smallest companies are quite small that fall outside that and they said the market for these companies is gone there's no bid for them anymore because so much money's focused in the indexes and the authors of that article sort of posited that the only way that these companies would find returns was in takeovers and getting and going private and i so as as a sort of fundamental value investor that excites me a little bit that you would find these incredibly cheap companies and could foment change and create some sort of um, create some sort of event that would drive some returns there. But I, I, that is a concern, perhaps that there is that tipping point. Do you have any sort of idea why forty five percent is a magic number or fifty percent is the magic number? You know, it's interesting because I, I, I ran a simulation. Um, I, I developed my own simulation that, that looked at active and passive agents and created a simulated market. Um, and then looked at that evolving over time. And I actually presented that in that, in that June paper, I think. Um, and so I did that work and I, I came up with that, that approximate level. Um, actually, in my, in my paper, it was about 60%. But I assumed that the active to passive level remains consistent throughout. Um, if you actually adjust where, where active managers are fired for passive, then the level begins to shift down, um, which is interesting. So that's my green did a similar analysis that came up with um, uh, practically the same numbers. That's what was so fascinating about it. We were coming from two independent, both of us were programming our own simulated environments to try to test this theory, and both came out with approximately the same, slightly different, but very similar levels. Um, why Why is there that level? I, I think it's just like anything else. There's there's an equilibrium that is that is matched. And when you you have a system on, on the edge of a, a healthy equilibrium, when you tip over that equilibrium, it's enough to, to destabilize. Um, and figuring out where exactly that tipping point is, 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 is a science, um, a science in and of itself. 
Now, we've run these models and simulated models. It's very difficult to then apply that directly to the global economy because there's many more variables that come into play. Um, but it certainly is something interesting to at least prove on a, on a theoretical uh, toy model basis that there's, that there's validity to the theory. Um, but I think everyone talks about passive investing as market efficiency, you know, and, and this goes to what, what you're talking about with the Russell and also with the market capitalization weighted. It's, it, what it actually is is a form of momentum investing. It's a form of liquidity momentum investing um, when it becomes the dominant form. Um, we're not talking about, you know, the Bogle passive investing back in the 90s when it was kind of a, a, a revolutionary, throughout the 80s and 90s, was a revolutionary concept and being adopted. But finance has this wonderful way, and this is something that Jim, Jim Grant has very eloquently said. It takes a good idea, puts it to the extreme, and then that good idea, what initially starts out as a good idea, becomes a, a a very dangerous thing when it's taken outside of the middle path and becomes the dominant the dominant thesis. Um, in 1987, everyone blames portfolio insurance. There's nothing wrong with portfolio insurance when you have you know one or two guys doing it. When it's done in mass by every major institution, it becomes a massive source of instability. <laughs> Right. So each individual actor could be doing what is rational, but aggregated, it becomes an irrational sort of behavior that leads to adverse uh, consequences in the market. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I was trying to explain this um, uh, in 2000, uh, I think it was in 2016, or actually early 2017, there was a debate that we had um, with uh, actually the, the guy who, who, uh, who essentially created XIV and was the CIO of XIV. And he was saying, "You guys just hate risk. You don't, you don't like risk. You're afraid." Of that. I'm like, "No, no. It's, this isn't about, this isn't about risk. Like taking risks and taking risk premium is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. It's when you systematically apply something nonstop that it becomes a bad thing." And I said, "Well, it's it's like this. You know, I'm a single guy. I go out and I I see a a cute girl and I." ask for her phone number that's taking a risk and uh, you know maybe maybe she goes she gives me her number and we go on a nice dinner date together well maybe she says you know no thank you um, and that's okay and I go on now imagine if I systematically took that risk and kept asking her number again and again and again that's that's called stalking and it's not a good thing that's bad right so so systematically applying risk um, in a non-thoughtful way, you take a good idea and you turn something into something very, very dangerous. And um, unfortunately, I think in this world of financial engineering, uh, we, we become so enthralled with harvesting risk premium that we lose common sense. And, um, and good ideas, when they become dominant, become destabilizing. Uh, finance is littered with it. I mean, everything from portfolio insurance to mortgage-backed securities to, I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on. Look, I think that's, uh, that's a perfect place to end it. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for giving me the time. I certainly appreciate it, and I hope uh, the listeners have learned something today. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoy it. It's just, just like having, uh, just like old times, actually. So <laughs> I look forward to another one in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely. It'll be a lot of fun. So we'll, we'll see you soon. Have a great one, Toby. Perfect. Thank you. Bye-bye.